All right. Y'all hear me okay? Good. Good to have you all here tonight. Um, make sure I get all my notes in the right place here. Let me see if we get this right tonight. This coming Sunday is is Mother's Day. Okay, so this weekend is Mother's Day weekend here at the church. Uh, Now, this is not the Gordita weekend. Just Mother's Day. Don't confuse the two. It's the week after. Well, you, you see, something's wrong with you. I was talking about the days, not the names. Uh-huh. I'm going to have to pray for you all double tonight. Uh-huh. It's the 19th, right? Is that the Gordita day? Uh, is that the 19th? Is it the 19th? Just to make sure. Okay. All right. My, I, I really feel like you need prayer, a lot of prayer tonight. Uh, okay, Revelation chapter 6. We are moving slowly but surely through the book of Revelation chapter 6 because we don't want to miss anything of value, anything of importance. We want to make sure we cover every base. When it comes to the prophetic word of the Lord. And we are dealing with prophecy. We are dealing with things to come. Now, people would would say, well, if we're dealing with things to come, then, you know, there's a lot of different ways to interpret it. And this is why we look at the scripture verse by verse. Why we look at things in every chapter of the Bible that we teach here, we look at in that manner. Verse by verse, line upon line, precept upon precept, because everything is important. What man has tried to do today is change what's important. And uh, condense things almost down to say that the only thing that's really important is what Jesus said about love and what Jesus said about being nice to everybody and not doing one thing or another. Uh, and, and so what, what's happened in the world <clears throat> is that, especially in the church, is that we've, we've weakened the message of the gospel. I don't say we, but I mean, you know, we have to say that in the, in the body of Christ, through a lot of various, different, various and different ways, We've weakened the message of the gospel <clears throat> to the extent, pardon me, <clears throat> to the extent that sin is now something that we treat subjectively rather than objectively. What I mean by that is, well, you know, we can. We're all sinners, so... But Jesus has forgiven us of everything. Well, He has. But we have to understand the price that was paid to forgive. 
And because of the price that was paid to forgive, we have to consider how we live our lives as believers in Jesus Christ, looking for the day that is to come. Just read, if you will, Titus chapter 2, the letter of Paul to Titus. Chapters 2 and and, and 3 are chapters that deal both with how we are to live our lives waiting for the return of Jesus Christ. What it does is reminds us of how we lived our life before. We're not to live that way again. Because we're looking for the day of Jesus Christ. We're looking for the coming of the Lord. So, we, we must do everything that we can to set straight what the Scripture says about what is to come because everything does matter. Sin matters. Forgiveness of sin does matter. The remission of sins through the blood of Jesus Christ matters. The work of the cross of Jesus Christ matters. The coming of Jesus for the church matters. So we cannot weaken any point of the Word of God. So as we arrive to our text, which is verses 7 and 8 tonight, I still want to read verses 1 through 8. So we begin with verse 1. Remember that John is seeing this as God is giving him vision while he's still in, you know, in heaven. He's been carried to heaven. He has seen the scene of heaven with all the worship that has gone on before the throne of God. The 24 elders representing the, the uh, redeemed of all time. <clears throat> Those who have come to know that Jesus Christ is the one who died on the cross for the sins of men and those who believe that he did so will receive the blessing of eternal life. The four living creatures representing much of the characteristics of God and of course there is a throne and the angels and all that are taking their particular places in in heaven and doing all, you know, worship came before the judgments and now judgments coming. And so part of all that's going on is this statement of the opening of the seals of the scroll. One scroll, or I should say one seal at a time. And John said, Now I saw when the Lamb opened one of the seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures saying with a voice like thunder, Come and see. And I looked, and behold, a white horse. He who sat on it had a bow. And a crown was given to him, and he went out conquering and to conquer. And we remember that as we looked at that particular horseman and that horse, a white horse, might be Jesus, right? But it isn't. He has a bow, an instrument of war. Jesus has a sword. The bow has no arrows. It speaks of a false peace, a bloodless peace. Make everybody happy in the world. We finally arrived at peace, something the Christians couldn't give us when they were here. Speaking all about Jesus and the Prince of Peace and all of that. Oh, we've got peace now. Verse 3. When he opened the second seal, I, I heard the second living creature saying, Come and see. And another horse fiery red went out and it was granted to the one who sat on it to take peace from the earth 
and that people should kill one another. And there was given to him a great sword, the sword of war. Five. When he opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, Come and see. So I looked, and behold, a black horse, and he who sat on it had a pair of scales in his hand. From a false peace to sudden destruction and war, out of this war comes this great famine and hunger. In verse 6, I heard a voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying, A quart of wheat for a denarius, and three quarts of barley for a denarius, and do not harm the oil and the wine. Along with this hunger comes injustice. When he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature saying, Come and see. This is what we'll be looking at tonight. Verse 8. So I looked, and behold, a pale horse. And the name of him who sat on it was Death. And Hades followed with him. And power was given to them over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword, with hunger, with death, and by the beasts of the earth. I don't know if any of you have ever seen... uh, Turner Classic Movies, or especially the last couple of weeks. But it's really been interesting to me. I, I, I'm somewhat of an old movie buff, you know, but uh, I don't understand new movies. They're a little bit too weird for me, but I like the old movies. And one of my favorite movies of, of the past, or two, one, one was the original, the other was a remake. The first was a silent movie. The second was, was a talkie. Uh, the, but but it, it was called The Four Horsemen of the Apocalypse. Anybody ever seen that or heard about it? It's 1921, Rudolph Valentino, uh, that was actually his, his debut. Isn't it interesting, Hollywood, taking a, a movie called The Four Horsemen of the Apocalypse. It was about a family from Argentina that moves back to Europe, in a sense, and well, there's, there's a lot of family issues, but it was during a time of war, and war was at the center of it all. And then not too long after that was another movie, right before that I should say, was a movie called Behold a Pale Horse with Gregory Peck. Anybody heard about that one? Am I the only old movie buff around? A couple of you, okay. Yeah, Behold a Pale Horse. Well, we just read that, didn't we? Right out of the Bible. Hollywood loves to take movies and, and take, or loves to take Bible verses and, and make movies out of them, you know. They ought to read the Bible in Hollywood, get something out of it. But it's interesting, though, that was about War too. It was about war, uh, the Spanish Civil War, which is an interesting war in itself to study. Now, I thought I'd just mention that because, you know, it's, it's just so, so clear that we can, we can take the titles of, uh, that come out of the Bible and make movies out of them that have nothing to do with what the Bible has to say about the four horsemen or the pale horse. So keep reading your Bibles and study the Word. Anyway, you all know who this is. Some 15 years before his death, Mahatma Gandhi wrote these words. He said, I must tell you in all humility that Hinduism, as I know it, entirely satisfies my soul, fills my whole being, 
And I find solace in the Bhagavad and Upanishads that I miss even in the Sermon on the Mount. By the way, the Bhagavad and Upanishads are really the scriptures of, of the Hindus. And they tell a lot of stories and kind of weird stories, and, you know, because they have to include about, you know, seven million gods uh, they worship and all of that. But, uh, but anyway, he says he finds solace in Bhagavad and Upanishads that I miss even in the Sermon on the Mount. What he said by that, what he meant by that is the, the, the good truths are not even in the Sermon on the Mount. But I find solace in my Hinduism. That was 15 years before his death. And then just before his death, Gandhi penned this last testament, if you will. May not have been the last thing he wrote, but this is something he wrote just prior to his death. And he wrote this. Listen to the difference. My days are numbered. I'm not likely to live very long. Perhaps a year or a little more. For the first time in 50 years, I find myself in the slough of despond. That's an old, old English phrase. The slough of despond means the hopelessness of depression and dejection. Gee, I thought he was really into the Bhagavad and the Upanishads. I thought that was his solace, that was his comfort, that was his everything, wasn't it? And now, 15 years later, he says, I find myself in the slough of despond, the hopelessness of depression and dejection. And he says, all about me is darkness. I am praying for light. I don't know that he ever found the light, the true light. Jesus said, I am the light of the world. I don't know that he ever found it. How sad a story this is to live, listen, to live your whole life believing a lie. To live your whole life believing in a lie only to find at the end of your life that you are in darkness. And like Gandhi, many people do the exact same thing today. They reject the truths found in the Word of God to believe what they feel is right. There are a lot of people today living by feelings, but not by truth. And during the tribulation period that is yet to come, but not so many years away, if that, we see the very same same thing will take place. I I found a little better picture than the one I gave you before. It holds pretty true when you think of the one on the far right is a pale horse with death riding it and, and that sickle in his hand. But as we've seen in the past three weeks, the characteristics and plan of the coming Antichrist are, are being revealed to John as well as to us in a time period that will follow the rapture of the church and begin the events of the seven-year tribulation period. Uh, A time period that not only will conclude the chastening judgment upon Israel and return Israel to their Lord and their God, but a time of great and terrifying judgment upon a world that has rejected the truth and the salvation of Jesus Christ. The rider of the white horse, the first horse, 
will usher in a short period of peace. We've talked about this already. Peace of about three and a half years, even though that is the beginning of tribulation. And a lot of things are happening at that time that show and prove that it is a time and a day of darkness. But it's a false peace. Because if you remember 1 Thessalonians 5 verse 3, it says, For when they say peace and safety, then sudden destruction comes upon them as labor pains upon a pregnant woman and they shall not escape. And that is why technically the last three and a half years of the, of the tribulation period is called the Great Tribulation. Because there will be no tribulation ever in history that could compare to the kind of tribulation and darkness and destruction and devastation that is going to take place in those three and a half years. And that day, I have to say, is getting closer. That day is getting closer, which will remind us that the world is on the verge of God's judgment. The world is on the verge of God's judgment. Many, many years ago, they used to have caricatures of, of people, you know, who used to carry signs, uh, you know, these sandwich signs. They would wear a long white robe and sandals and long hair. And it says, the end is coming, the end is coming, or the end is near, you know, and, and all. And, and it would be something that was made fun of. Because people don't want to hear that things are getting worse. The world really wants to say, look, we're, we're smart enough now, we're intelligent enough now to make this world better. Look at all the advances that we've made in science and medicine and, and in, in technology and, and, and you know, on and on and on. You've got computers in your cars now. You practically don't even have to drive them anymore. You press a button. It stops for you. It backs up for you. It pours a drink of water for you. Well, no, it doesn't do that. But it practically does all kinds of stuff. Backs up for you, you know, and beeps at you when you're doing something wrong. Wakes you up when you're driving. We have all of this stuff, but we still have sin. And man still is a sinner. Technology hasn't solved anything when it comes to eternal things. When it comes to the things of God. And now at the breaking of the second seal, the second rider on the horse emerges, a fiery red horse that represents war. Peace is taken from the earth as the scripture states. Isn't that an interesting thing? It isn't so much that, that the, the second rider brings war, it's that he comes and he takes peace away. And it is a reminder that we live in an age of war and conflict today. Since World War II, there have been more than 150 wars. I think we can probably escalate that to almost 200 wars of one kind or another on the earth since World War II. And at any given time, there may be some three dozen armed conflicts taking thousands of lives yearly. The nations of the world often spend more than one trillion dollars on military expenditures a year. The third seal is broken and it is loosed. And a black horse appears bringing scarcity, bringing hunger, bringing famine, injustice and, and inequity. This, this man of deception, this man of false peace, this man of war and famine 
will gain control of the world's food supply. And while the rich get richer, the poor will get poorer. It's all around us even today. It's happening around us today. We can't, we can't uh, close a blind eye to it. And now we arrive at the fourth loosed seal. Behold a pale horse. I looked long and hard to find a picture of a horse that had a little bit of a tinge of green in it. Because the word for pale in the Greek is, is a word that, that means, well, it's, it's describing a greenish or a grayish green. Sometimes a word, and by the way, the word is chloros, C-H-L-O-R-O-S, chloros, like chloroform, chlorophyll. That's usually green, isn't it? As a matter of fact, that word is, is, is used in the Gospels, uh, speaking about uh, the, the field where the people sat on the green grass. But in its context, it also is spoken of as the color of death. A corpse-like color, in other words. And the two verses that we look at tonight, verses 7 and 8, say, When he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature saying, Come and see. So I looked, and behold, a pale horse. And the name of him who sat on it was Death. Do you know that this is the only horseman that has a name? And his name is Death. And Hades followed after him. Excuse me. And power was given to them over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword, with hunger, with death, and by the beasts of the earth. In that last part of the verse, you see encapsulated all of the horsemen now riding together. Practically everything each one represents. As I said, the word pale refers to a color that is literally a pale grayish green. It is a color that has been associated with death. And so in the wake of the famine comes this horse, more terrible in its symbolic meaning, in that its color is corpse-like. And then the rider is called death, the aftermath of war and famine. The fourth living creature in heaven is given divine authority to send him forth. There have been furious wars, famines, and death-dealing plagues in the past, but nothing comparable to this event, which is still future. Its fury is depicted in its widespread effects, killing one-fourth of the earth's population, because that's what that, uh, that phrase means in that verse, verse 8. The killing of one-fourth of the earth's population. And this is the result of the foregoing judgments, which the Lord calls in Ezekiel 14.21, if you'll turn there, because there's something that you need to see in this verse. In Ezekiel 14, verse 21, it says, For thus saith the Lord God, How much more it shall be when I send my four severe sore judgments on Jerusalem 
Now two things have to be remembered here. That when we talk about end time prophecy, we have to come back to look at Israel and Jerusalem. You cannot really have Bible prophecy future uh, events without Israel. A lot of the church today does not want to deal with prophecy because they don't believe that the Israel that is in the Middle East today has anything to do with the Israel of the Bible. How wrong they they have become by not examining the scriptures, by not seeing that God says, I am going to finish what I have have begun in chastening you, and I have seven more years to do it. That's what the prophecy in Daniel is all about. In Daniel chapter 9, we see accounted for 60... nine years as it were of the 70 years of judgment accounted for one week uh, the weeks of years one week yet to happen that's seven years we've talked about it we're going to talk about it again as we go on into the study but the point is you cannot deny Israel as the center of Bible prophecy So this is not metaphoric to say it's Jerusalem. It's talking about Jerusalem. And it says, notice this, the sword and famine and wild beasts and pestilence. Four things. Well, we just read in verse 8 in Revelation chapter 6. The sword, war, famine, hunger, wild beasts, well, and pestilence. It's all the aftermath of of war. We'll talk about that in just a moment. And notice, to cut off man and beast from it. Excuse me, I want you to consider that 20 million people died. 20 million people. Can you think about that for a moment? How many people live in Mexico City today? Is it it close to 40 million people now in, in Mexico City? About... Can you imagine half of Mexico City just dying completely? Everybody dying? Or at least half of the population? 20 million people is a lot of people. 20 million people died in the influenza epidemics of World War I. And 6 million more died of typhus at the same time. 26 million people dying of influenza and typhus. Even today, new wonder drugs haven't eliminated the possibility of mass death by pestilence. It hasn't. Prominent medical men have warned that antibiotics and sulfur drugs, when when used with routine frequency, may defeat their germ-killing purpose and lead to more resistant germs. I think we've been finding that out. If you heard or read recently, you know that these... uh, What are those... uh, antibacterial hand cleaners, you know, and stuff. That the more we use them, the less effective they become. I think that's what the studies are saying. Drug-resistant bacteria that can foil several antibiotics have already appeared. We are fighting an unending battle against infectious diseases, not to mention what we fight when we fight against cancer and AIDS. 
I mean, you know, sometimes we think that somewhere down the line, AIDS got taken care of. It hasn't been taken care of, folks. I'm sorry to say, but somehow it's just being kind of covered up in the media, the mainstream media. And sadder still, yet quite relevant in prophetic analysis, is how modern man has crowned all his other insanities by adding pestilence to his arsenals. Once it was called germ warfare. Some of us are old enough to remember when they talked about germ warfare. I mean, you could even go all the way back to World War I. I think there was some world, uh, germ warfare used, and that's what they called it back then. But the more scientific name for it is biological warfare. The use of biological toxins or infectious agents such as bacteria, viruses, and fungi with the intent to kill or incapacitate humans, animals, or plants as an act of war. You know, it is one of the four types of weapons of mass destruction. WMDs, right? We've all heard about that a lot in the last 10 years. Maybe the last 15 years or so. Weapons of mass destruction. You know what the four types are? There's biological. There's chemical. There's nuclear. Or as President Bush used to say, nuclear. And radiological. The four types of weapons of mass destruction. Now there is, uh, to be clear... A distinction between a nuclear uh, weapon and a radiological weapon. They're very similar, <clears throat> but quite different. <clears throat> Excuse me. A nuclear weapon is an, uh, is an explosive device that derives its destruction force from nuclear, nuclear, now I'm talking like President Bush, nuclear reactions, either fission or a combination of fission and fusion, atom bomb. Hydrogen bomb, that kind of thing. Uh, even though hydrogen is the thermonuclear. A radiological weapon is any weapon that is designed to spread radioactive material with the intent to kill and cause disruption. We know them as dirty bombs. A different kind of, of weapon. Uh, it uses conventional explosives to spread radioactive material, most commonly uh, the spent fuels from nuclear power plants or radioactive medical waste. But the focus for us tonight is really with the biological weapons of mass destruction. Because there is enough bacteria stockpiled today to infect people with scores of diseases. One, one of the things that is being brought uh, to the world's attention is that Syria, the, 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 the government of Syria today, Assad's government, is using biological weapons against their own people. And uh, so we know that that happened uh, with uh, Saddam Hussein in Iraq, the use of biological weapons against his own people. So it's, it's happened in our days, in, in our time. We have chemical agents that can destroy entire populations with terrifying ease. 
Some biological weapons are ground into fine powders and, and sprayed into favorable winds. I'm not giving anybody any ideas. I'm telling you that this is what is happening and what has happened. Water supplies are sometimes the targets. Listen carefully. Infected rodents, ticks and lice are dropped into enemy territories. The list can go on and on and on and on. And don't think nations and leaders are paying attention to treaties banning these methods and weapons. They laugh at them. Hitler laughed in the face of treaties. That gives you an idea. The worst despots in the world laugh in the face of paper. Let me make one more point on the infected rodents. I want you to look again at verse 8 of our text. At the very bottom there, at the, the last phrase. I looked and behold a pale horse and the name of him who sat on it was death. And Hades followed with him and power was given to them over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword, hunger and with death. And notice, by the beasts of the earth. To kill by the beasts of the earth. Now, it brought to mind some questions. Is this the rise of the planet of the apes? Will mankind be imperiled by lions and tigers and bears, oh my? It is significant that the Greek word translated beasts occurs 38 times in the book of Revelation apart from references having to do with the B's, capital B, apart, which is the coming Antichrist. Thirty-eight other references to beasts occur in the book of Revelation. So we need to ask ourselves, is the most destructive creature on earth, the lion, the tiger, the bear, as far as mankind is concerned? What about... The rat. I didn't want to put a picture of a rat up there. You all know what rats look like. But what about the rat? The rat is clever, adaptable, and destructive. If 95% of the rat population is exterminated in a given area, the rat population will replace itself within a year. It has killed more people than all the wars of history, and it makes its home wherever man is found. It makes you wonder, how did they get on the ship, you know, in, in, in uh, Indiana Jones, in the, in, you know, in the Ark, what is it, the Raiders of the Lost Ark. Remember it was on the ship, and what did they have there? Rats. You ever seen like a Star Trek or Star Wars and you think, how did the rats get on the spaceship? But they were there. Maybe it was just there for, you know, some kind of, something to think about. But I think it's kind of interesting that they would put these rats on a, in a you know, a, a practically sterile ship. I think it does give an idea to us about the sinfulness of man that, you know, Ugly things follow man, wherever he goes, no matter where he goes.
Rats carry as many as 35 different diseases. They're fleas. The fleas on rats alone carry bubonic plague, which killed a third of the population of Europe in the 14th century. Their fleas also carry typhus, which in four centuries has killed an estimated 200 million people. Rats can and do menace human food supplies, which links this creature not only to pestilence, but also to famine. And so the last sentence of verse 8 of our text is a picture of the four horsemen riding into the coming dreadful and dark day of the Lord, wielding war, starvation, pestilence, and death in a number of ways. You might even include a few rats following them. But we really haven't considered in detail the first part of the verse. Let's look at the first part of the verse. It says, the name of him who sat on it was death. And Hades followed with him. And power was given to them over a fourth of the earth. The power was given to them, to whom? Death and Hades. The devil is the one who had the power of death. Have you ever spoken to people who say they're Christians and they don't believe that there's a real devil? Again, it makes me wonder what kind of Bibles they read. It seems to me that if we look around this world and we look at it carefully and compare it to what the Word of God says about the end times, I think we better believe that there is an enemy. We better believe that there is a force of, of, of power that, that, that leads people into this, this darkness of doing. And what they do, they do in darkness. And time and again, we're, we're encouraged in the Scriptures. Listen, we're not people of the darkness now. We are people of the light now. We are to be in the light. We are to live for the light. We are to shine forth the light of Jesus Christ. The devil is all about darkness. The devil is the one who had the power of death. Hebrews 2.14 Paul says, inasmuch then as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared uh, in the same, which means Jesus took upon himself flesh, that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is the devil. So there is the statement that lets us know that the devil had the power of death. He had the power of death. Well, think about it, going into the garden... Of Eden, and as the as the serpent, the wise and crafty serpent that stood on his stood up in some way, I guess had the the the, the very things that he needed to be able to stand up. Not the kind of serpent that we'd ever have, have ever seen, but nonetheless, he was attractive enough for Eve to have a conversation with him. For him to say the things that he said. Did God really say? Did he really tell you that you're not, to, you're not supposed to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? Because on the day that you eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Did he really say that? He was calling God a liar. People down through the ages who have followed whatever the, script, whatever the, the, uh, the enemy says. They're essentially calling God a liar. God didn't say those things. 
God didn't write the, the Bible. There's no God. God is a, is a creation of man, not man being a creation of God. We filled our, our lives with so much wisdom ourselves. We, our academia has brought us to that place where we could do anything. We are gods now. Man has bought into the lie. By his very lies, he was also a murderer. We'll get to that in a moment. But by his very lie, man died. Man was killed that day when they ate of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They would die physically years later, but on that day they died spiritually. We've seen the enemy exercise death upon the family of Job the moment that he had the permission of God. Oh Lord, you protect Job too much. You protect his family too much. Give me just an inch and I'll make him curse you. That's the devil. And what he does now in this passage, he only does definitely by the command of Jesus Christ. When it comes down to it, he had the power of death. But when Jesus Christ died on the cross, he conquered sin and death. And there's only one place left for sin and death and Hades and we'll see that later too the lake of fire created for the enemy and his angels I want you to remember what it says in Revelation 1 verse 18 Jesus says I am he who lives and was dead so we know who it is I am he who lives and was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. In other words, I don't die again. I'm alive, and I will always be. Amen, he says. Verily, this is true. You want to know what's true? I'm never going to die again. I'm alive. I've conquered death. And I have the keys of Hades and of death. So who's in control now? You see, Jesus is. See, we don't understand a lot. We, we oftentimes in this world, we, we like, oh Lord, we're, we're going so much by our feelings, by our thoughts, our emotions. And I'm so thankful the Lord is so patient with us. But you know what? We have to, we have to remember. We're still in a fallen earth. We're still living on a cursed earth. We still hurt. We still pain. We haven't ourselves conquered those things, but Jesus has conquered it for us so that even when we die, we live. If we believe in Him, if we have trusted in Him, if we confess Him, we live. And we get new bodies later too. That'll be the exciting part of studying the book of Revelation. 
But as we observe the four horsemen riding forth, we must not forget that they come at the express command of the one who opens the seals. They don't appear until he opens the seals. Christ is in control. What comfort for us today and what comfort for the persecuted ones of the future to know that no movement of Satan is apart from the knowledge and the will of God. But the rider of the pale horse, death, the only rider named will mow down with the sickle of death one-fourth of the population of the earth, which could be nearly, nearly two billion people. You know, it's been said that by 2025, it's not too long from now, maybe about 12 years, but in 2025, the population of the world is figured to be about nine billion people. If we get that far, one-fourth of nine billion is 2.25 billion people. That's a lot of people. If he comes sooner than that, it will be close to two billion people. That will perish. Follow, following close behind death on the horse is Hades or hell gathering up the victims. You have to remember the reason why the Lord takes His church out of the way. He's got business to attend to. Those that were left, unless they all of a sudden come to Accept the truth which they will be given the opportunity. We're going to talk about that next week. We're going to talk about the tribulation saints. But unless they repent and give their lives to Jesus Christ with the knowledge that they remembered from before the church being taken out. then there's going to be a harvest of death, a gathering up of these victims. Hades, as we understand it in the Scriptures, is the abode of the unregenerated souls that leave the body at death. And Hades is an ally, as you see here, of death. Hades is the abode of departed spirits between death and resurrection. It is temporary in contrast to the lake of fire, which is forever turn to Revelation 20 I got to let you know that there's something beyond chapter 6 so turn to Revelation 20 and I want you to see verses 13 through 15 the sea gave up the dead who were in it the sea is not just a, like a body of water it's, it's, it's descriptive it's uh, 
symbolic of, of a mass of people. But the sea gave up the dead who were in it, and death and Hades delivered up the dead who were with them. So we see that death and Hades aren't done here in chapter 6. And they were judged, notice, each one according to his works. And then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. Now they're done. This is the second death. I'll explain that when we get there. And anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. And again, the lake of fire was created not for man, but for the devil and his angels. It was created for death and Hades. But when you reject Jesus Christ, and after being given the opportunity to receive Christ, to accept the truth of the knowledge of the gospel, to accept the truth of the cross of Jesus Christ, to accept the work of the, of the cross of Jesus Christ, then whoever has rejected and not found in the book of life will suffer being cast into the lake of fire for eternity. We'll talk again about that later. But now, if we were to consider, <coughs> if we were to consider the spiritual side of the, of the symbols given, especially here in chapter 6 of Revelation, there are still some great truths to reflect upon. Now, what I'm going to tell you is, is that all of this stuff is yet to happen, and it is going to happen. This is not all symbolic, okay, of some metaphoric thing, or it's not going to be a metaphoric thing or uh, analogous of things. It is going to happen. This is the way it's being described. We have to take it literally in this sense. But there are still some spiritual truths that we need to understand are a part of our understanding here. Take, for instance, the character and the actions of the fourth writer, the character and the actions of the writer called death. The devil who had been given the power of death is also called by Jesus something else. Notice John 8:44. He says of the devil, as he speaks to the people who are not believers in Jesus, he says, you are of your father, the devil. And the desires of your father you want to do. What did they want to do to Jesus? Because they didn't like him. They wanted to kill him. They wanted to stone him. Using the law as their justification. The problem is, Jesus wrote the law. And he was the fulfillment of the law. And they were blind to that. But nonetheless, they wanted to kill him. So he says, you're the father of the devil and the desires of your father you want to do. And then he says, he was a murderer from the beginning. And does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. Now this is a significant statement. There is no truth in the devil. What he takes is truths from here and there and uses it for his own means. But he has no real truth in himself. Jesus, on the other hand, is truth. And He came to manifest the truth for us. The truth of the Father. And then He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. But He was a murderer from the beginning. Genesis chapter 3. Mankind was murdered that day. And does not stand in the truth because there's no truth in him. When he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own resources. For he is a liar and the father of it. So you see his desire to kill. And he goes forth to kill with his own sword. 
Now, I bring that up because spiritually speaking, think about this. The Apostle Paul tells us in Ephesians chapter 6, verse... Oops, I keep pressing the wrong button. Okay, here we go. In Ephesians chapter 6, verse 17, he says when he's speaking of the armor of God, he says, take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. What do we know the Word of God to be? It's the truth. And what proceeds from the mouth of the Lord? The sword, of the, the sword which is the Word of God. So the contrast here, the weapon of Satan is, of course, counterfeit. Representing the spiritual lie as opposed to the truth of God. But please remember this, God's truth makes alive. Satan's lie kills. God's truth can only make alive, but Satan's lie can only kill. I want you to consider something. 2 Thessalonians 2, verses 9 through 12. 2 Thessalonians 2, 9 through 12 says, The coming of the lawless one is according to the working of Satan. The coming of the Antichrist, the beast, the coming of the rider of, of the horses, in essence, all of them, but, but you know, the, the one who comes first of all in peace, which is a lie. And so he says, the lawless one is according to the working of Satan with all power, signs, and lying wonders. And with all unrighteous deception among those who perish because they did not receive the love of the truth that they might be saved. Which tells us that the truth has to go out and it is the church of Jesus Christ. It is the believer. It is the one who gives true testimony and witness of the gospel of Jesus Christ and the cross of Christ and the blood of Christ and the resurrection of Christ that lets the world know He is coming. He is available. That you can receive Him at any time now. Receive Him. Because one day He will come and if you have it, you will be judged. Ample warning, fair warning, plenty of time. What is the age of grace? We're still in it, folks. 2,000 years. Plus. Or almost, anyway. They did not receive the love of the truth that they might be saved. And for this reason, verse 11, and for this reason God will send them a strong delusion. That they should believe, I want you to notice something, the lie. Literally, that's what it says in the Greek. It is the lie. Some translations say a lie. It is the lie. What is the lie? Go all the way back to Genesis chapter 3. That is the lie. Go to Isaiah 14. Lucifer, I will sit in the highest place. I will make that my throne. Verse 12, that they may all, or that they all may be condemned who did not believe the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. Has God not given everybody an opportunity? I mean, how many opportunities can we give people? I have to tell you, the enemy is trying to silence the church today. The enemy is trying to silence the church. I read something somewhere today that 
said that uh, there's there's a move afoot in the uh, you know in, in the halls of Congress, I suppose, but where they make laws that says that anything that is found or used even biblically or from the scriptures uh, against things like homosexuality and same-sex marriage and other things is going to be considered a hate statement leading to a hate crime. It's already happened. A pastor in Sweden a few years ago was arrested because he, he preached from the scriptures with, with love and care and concern to, to, to bring people who are homosexuals to Christ. To say, listen, leave your sin with Christ. He died for you for that. I mean, it, it was all in love and yet somebody complained and they arrested him. He was in a prison or jail for preaching the truth. And the Lord says, hey, I'm not, I'm not mincing words here. They will be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. The spiritual hunger is clearly understood where there is no feeding on the Word of God. Write down Amos 8 verse 11. Look it up yourselves. Amos chapter 8 verse 11. That's your homework. It speaks about a famine, not of water or bread, but of the word of the Lord. And read that whole passage right after it too. This famine is always a pain. It is a sore because spiritual death always follows spiritual hunger. The lie spreads like pestilence carrying its disease to victims that will perish with no hope. The lie spreads like pestilence and disease carrying those spiritual plagues to the victims that will perish with no hope like Gandhi But it will all take place, as the Lord Jesus Christ said it would. It would take place in the last days, in the days when perilous times shall reign in society and in every culture. The order was clearly outlined by Jesus as well. Turn to Matthew 24, verses 4 through 8. Matthew 24, verses 4 through 8. And Jesus answered and said to them, Take heed that no one deceives you, for many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ and will deceive many. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not troubled. For all these things must come to pass, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. And there will be, notice, there will be Famines, pestilences, and earthquakes in various places. And what does Jesus call all of that? All these are the beginning of sorrows. 
People would much rather call it the end of sorrows, but no, it's just the beginning of sorrows. But the believer in Jesus Christ can take courage because he is in Christ. And a believer in Christ need not fear. You all don't have to fear. You don't have to fear death. Jesus has conquered death for us. You don't have to fear anything. Not presumptuously, I'm I'm just saying you don't have to fear because your, your trust is in the Lord. Trust is not in yourself, it is not in your academia, it is not in your intellect, it is in Jesus Christ. Already the signs indicate that the end is near. A person's only hope is a right relationship with the Lamb of God who is Jesus Christ Himself. That is a person's only hope. It is a right relationship with Christ. Receive Him at once if you haven't. Receive Him now. Receive Him. Accept the truth of God's precious Word that speaks of why Jesus came to die for sinners. Accept Him at once. Those who do will, those who do will rejoice with the redeemed that shall be taken out of the earth before that great and dreadful day of the Lord. And may the Lord awaken us all to see the horror of coming tribulation and thus move us, move us toward prayer, move us toward giving, move us toward a renewed desire to reach the lost with the gospel of Jesus Christ. I want to close with Luke 21, verses 34 to 36. Let's close with this. Jesus said, but take heed to yourselves. Take heed to yourselves. Pay attention about yourself. Lest your hearts be weighed down with carousing, drunkenness, and cares of this life. And that day come on you unexpectedly. It is so sad to think of so many Christians that, you know, just feel like, you know, we just got to live life, man. We just got to go out there and live life and do stuff and do this and do that. And, you know, God will forgive us, I'm sure. Folks, the hour is late. There is no greater joy than the presence of Christ in your life. You know, some of us who have tasted the fruit of the world in the days when we lived without Christ, man, all we can say is, don't go that way. There's nothing of eternal value. There's nothing of of eternal pleasure in that. It's a passing pleasure of the world. The world has nothing to offer us. Christ has everything to offer us. Verse 35, For it will come as a snare on all those who dwell on the face of the whole earth. You see... Judgment is going to be pretty heavy. So we have to start thinking about ourselves and where we stand with Christ because of the hour. And so this is what the Lord says to us today. He says, watch therefore. 
and pray always that you may be counted worthy to escape all these things that will come to pass and to stand before the Son of Man, to escape all these things. People say, oh, you people who believe in the rapture of the church and you believe that you know, the Lord's going to take you out because you guys are just chickens and cowards. No, we're not. We'll stay as long as God wants us to stay. We've got brothers and sisters in Christ today dying for their faith in other countries. Some of us are facing persecution just for being Christians in our schools as teachers. As students. We have elementary school kids that are being mocked not only by other children but by teachers for being Christians or for living in a Christian family. If that's what academic institutions are teaching teachers today, may God have mercy on their souls. The greatest universities of this country in the 16th and 17th, or I should say the 17th and 18th century, were all universities based upon the Word of God. Harvard, Yale, Princeton, and many, many others. Today, these institutions, these same institutions, upon which on their old, old buildings still have scriptures written upon them, today they say, no, you must tolerate. And you must not spew your religion in this place. We are far advanced. We've evolved. Christianity has become to this world a pestilence. But praise God, it isn't the aroma of death. It is the aroma of life. You stand for life. And you stand strong. And when you stand, you stand. And withstand. And put on the armor of God each and every day. And be the, the light that Christ has called you to be. And be the salt of the earth. but also show the love of Christ because it was love that died on a cross for the sins of man. Let's pray.